0: preface it a little bit. Um, You'll see the title of the sermon is up there, Love's Debt. And the the big idea that we want to go away with this morning is that we owe a debt of love and the time that they are our due date is every day. Um, And there's three main points in our passage that we'll find is the debt of love, the law of love, and the urgency But before I get to our main passage in Romans, I want to show you just a few places of many that we could find throughout scripture that speak of a time when things will all come to an end. Okay, the first one is from Job chapter 19. Um, One of my professors said, and I've often said it myself and may be true, that this could be one of the greatest statements of faith in all of the Bible. Because Job, he didn't have any of the written revelation that he had. Job was even before Abraham. And so in his time where he was being tested uh, in these great calamities that happened to him, he gives this kind of a, a talk or speech whatever you want to call it. I think it's prophetic. And in Job chapter 19 at 25... 27 he says this again one of the greatest statements of faith why? because he did not have any of the revelation that we have we're we're so fortunate we have all of the Old Testament and the New Testament and all along with the testimony of many saints but Job said for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has thus been destroyed yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. So Job is proclaiming that no matter what he sees right in front of him right now, with the misery that he was in at the time when he said this, is that literally his skin was being eaten away. Um, I think one of the older translations, maybe the King James, if I remember right, this stuff about man, I think it says something about the skin worms or but his, his skin is being eaten away, and yet in that miserable situation, he says, I know my redeemer lives, I know I'm going to see him face to face. What a powerful statement. Of faith. Then Isaiah, the prophet, in uh, Isaiah 56 1, thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness will be revealed. Now, I'm going to be getting to this a little bit later, but look at the link to the expectation is a practical application now. To keep justice, do righteousness. Why? Because soon my salvation will come. And then in Luke 21, starting at 25, this is Jesus speaking, and he says, There will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is happening on the world or what is coming on the world, sorry. Uh, For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud of power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. So from Job to Isaiah to the prophet to Jesus our Lord, and throughout the history of man, righteous people have looked with great longing to the time when the earth would be delivered from this decay and a rot that sin has caused. And so we as well ought to long for, to hope for, to live for, our blessed hope, the coming of the Lord Jesus, who will make all things new. But how should our lives reflect this? Shall we look at the world and shake our head and say to ourselves, well, he's coming and then it'll all be well. Like, I don't have to do anything. Shall we remove ourselves as much as possible so that we're not involved with the sins of the world? Or shall we fulfill the law of God? To love one another, for our salvation is near. Well, we don't need to wonder what we should do, because we have a God. God's Word provides us with His will for us. His will is that we should obey. His will is that we will be sanctified, according to Paul's letters of the Thessalonians. And His will is that we should put on Christ. So I want to read our passage, Romans 13, 8 through 14, and then I will... uh, let pause it a little bit for you. Owe oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does the wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is an end. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness not in sexual immorality and sensuality not in quarrel and jealousy but put on the lord jesus christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires so again the big idea we owe a debt of love our due date is every day there's a debt of love the law of love and the urgency of love first we're going to look at the debt of love owe oh, no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, I want to just take a moment, uh, because this verse has been used before, to tell people that it is sinful to have any debt. And I don't believe that's what it says. The Bible speaks often of debt. Okay? But usually when the Bible is talking about debt, it's, it's warning about either not paying the debt back or those who uh, oppress people with lending. But in this verse we have to consider what the original letter said and, and Paul used a Greek word here that means something that is more like an ongoing thing okay so it could be more like don't keep your don't keep on in debt or don't leave your debts unpaid so we shouldn't take on debt we can't pay and being in debt Makes us a servant of the one we owe. The Bible tells us that. There's lots the Bible says about debt. It never says it's sinful to have debt. But there are a lot of practical reasons why you maybe should avoid more debt than you can handle. But this scripture is, is not one that should be used as saying that all debt is sinful. In fact, the point of this verse is not about money at all, is it? It's about our debt of love. The law is built by love. Now, while we are not to keep owing debts that we should have paid back already, while we shouldn't skip our payments (coughs) if we do have those debts, or we should not let that debt become a burden that is oppressive to us, we do have a debt that we never can consider to have been paid off. We're done with it. The debt of love that we owe to others is an ever-present debt. Now, if you've ever owed money to someone, especially if you knew it and you bumped into them, what's the thought you have when you see them? Oh, here comes the one that owed, you know bought me lunch the other day. I still well, owe lunch to that person, or whatever it might be. Now you feel this obligation, right? And what if you're still unable to pay that? You know, I feel a little stress or discomfort, right? If you see that person because you know, oh, I still owe some money to that person. Well, what if every encounter we have with other people made us stop to think of the debt of love we owe to that person? Then we move on to the law of love. I'm going to read 8 to 10 again. Owe oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, "You shall not commit adultery," "You shall not murder," "You shall not steal," "You shall not covet," and any other commandment are summed up in this word: "You shall love your neighbor as yourself." Love does no wrong to a neighbor; therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, there's a, a guy named Douglas Moo. who like the cow sound? Douglas Moon, he wrote this. There's two main possibilities about this. Paul may mean that love for others is the essential ingredient that must accompany obedience to all the other commandments. We must still obey these commandments, but they cannot truly be obeyed without a loving spirit. That makes sense.
1: Number two, he said
0: Paul may also mean that the demand of love for others replaces the other commandments. When we truly love the other, we automatically do what the other commandments of the law require. As Paul puts it in verse 10, love does no harm to its neighbor. No one who truly loves another person will murder, commit adultery, steal, or heaven. If I truly love my wife, I will keep the commandments. If I truly love you, I will keep the commandments. And on the flip side of that, if I want to keep the commandments, I have to live in love. Now, some rabbis throughout history have believed that if they approach things from pure love, they would automatically keep the commandments. In other words, if you were able to live perfectly in love, your natural state of doing things would be in peace. You wouldn't need the commandments even to be listed because your love would drive you to do all of those things. So when Jesus said, the law and the prophets were summed up in this way, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, he wasn't saying this for the first time. This was actually a very Jewish thing to say. for him. And if you'll remember from the Ten Commandments, and if you ever were a Marx student, I know you must know these, But the first four of the Ten Commandments are about loving God. Have no other gods, have no idols, don't use the name of God in blasphemy, keep the Sabbath. Those are all good, loving God. The next of the commandments are about loving people. Honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. That is, you shouldn't lie to get someone else in trouble. And ten, you shall not covet. Why? Because it leads to all of those other sins you covet your neighbor's wife, it leads to adultery. If you covet your neighbor's property, it leads to theft, which is stealing, which is another commandment. So the commandments could all be broken down to say if we love perfectly, we would automatically keep those commandments. Then we get to the urgency of love, and this is where I'm going to spend most of our time this morning. And I want to read again verses 11 to 14. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly, as in the daytime, not in orgies or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but for Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So if we go back and kind of look through this real briefly, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. In other words, people who are righteous throughout time, as I showed in the first few verses, and there's many other in scripture, that look forward to a time when God kind of comes and makes all things new that we should not be kind of falling asleep and not and just thinking, oh, everything's going to remain as it always has, so there's no urgency. But rather, we need to realize salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now Mark kind of jokes about this a lot. You know, you we're closer now than we've ever been. It's kind of a statement we make, but it's true. And he says, the night is far gone, the day is at hand. Now this is kind of we're thinking of the early early morning you know the, the daylight's just about done if you've ever camped out or been outside in the early early morning uh, where the night's over and the daylight's coming and you're kind of in that in between. And that's how we're supposed to think of ourselves that we're that we're very near to the time when the sun's going to come up and and it's going to shine upon us and because of that We want to live our lives with this debt of love. See, Paul is linking this together. About this portion of scripture here, R.C. Sproul said, if we understood this teaching, it should make a difference in how we live. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime. Do not live as if Christ hasn't come, as if the resurrection hasn't taken place. We have tasted of the kingdom of God. We have tasted the power of Christ in our lives. So let's stop doing the things that belong to the dark. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, hold yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Paul frequently teaches a a use of contrast. You used to live that way, but now you live this way. Put on the old and put on the new. These are the deeds of darkness. They're not fit for the light of faith. So too, our lives should manifest the same stark contrast from the manner in which the unregenerate live. Entirely too much license is practiced by the church today. Free from the law, O oh blessed condition, sin as I please and still have remission is the antinomian theme, which is a heresy by the way. antinomian is, a, is a, a brand of heresy. Uh, it's the theme song of the antinomians encouraged by growing numbers of evangelicals. Sad to say. But R.C. is wraps it up with this. He says, Paul does not shrink from naming those vices as sin, nor should we. Flee such immorality in favor of being clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. Wherever the Bible tells us that we're to be having this sense of urgency because the end of time is near, every time the Bible talks about this, it comes with instructions. The instructions are never, go sit on a mountainside and do nothing in the meantime but wait. The instructions are never, go through the daily news and try to attach some prophetic meaning to every event the instructions are never for us to be consumed with negativity the instructions are never for us to live in anger or unforgiveness the instructions are never to give up on the world because it is going to continue spiraling out of control anyway so that let not slide no the instructions from scripture about what we are to do based on our expectation of the soon coming of jesus is to stay in the world and engage with others. The instructions are to be aware of what is happening around us so that we can walk in wisdom. The instructions are to be hopeful, a light in the darkness of this world. The instructions are to live with a debt of love. The instructions are for us to cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. The instructions are to walk properly as in the daytime. Our instructions are to avoid the things of the flesh, not only orgies and drunkenness and sexual immorality, but quarreling and jealousy as well. Our instructions are to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what does that mean? This is, you know, throughout the scriptures, metaphorical language is used to make sure that everybody, regardless of how much college they had or didn't have or any education at all, anyone could understand this. If you were to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, this is an illustration. In the morning, I put on my clothes. This is what I'm presenting to the world today. And I've got to wear something, because otherwise I will not fit in with this world. But also, I'm projecting who I am through wearing those clothes. But the scripture says we're to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And our instructions are to be people of hope. And as I think of this, I think of my father-in-law who's passed away and having a great time, I know. Jim Kelly, Janelle's dad, when he thought of the end times, when he thought of Jesus coming again, his eyes were so bright. He had so much energy. He had so much happiness. But do you know what he did? He didn't just sit in this easy chair and say, well, Jesus, come get me. He shared the gospel. And when he saw bad news, it was bad news but he could turn around because he would immediately think of his Savior who's conquered the world. In this world, you'll have trouble, Jesus said, but take heart or be encouraged. I have overcome the world. And I think that my father in law, Jim, was a great example of someone whose theology, you know, we all have our little theology niches that we like to kind of stay in. His was end times. He always was thinking about Jerusalem, and he was always thinking about Israel, and he was always thinking about the Lord Jesus Christ coming back again. But it wasn't to turn things negative in his life, it was to turn things positive and to share Christ. To live Christ. We ought to see what the Bible says about the things in the end. They're written for our benefit, but our reaction to Scripture's story of the end, the life we should live in the expectation of His soon coming, is to live out practically here and now, the Scripture we've been learning. The Scripture in Romans, the Scripture in the Gospels, the Scripture, yes, even in Revelation, all of it is how we're to live now. Whenever the Bible talks about the end times, and the expectation that we should have It has a practicality that we're to live out here and now. If your only interest in the end times is the hope of being rescued from misery, you're missing a huge piece of the puzzle. That's part of it. But that's only a little part. If your study of the end times does not lead you to live in a way that practically loves your neighbor, your life does not reflect the hope that you have if you are missing out on something God offers to you, you can change that. In the light of the suffering of these times we're in now, His joy can overflow from you into the world. That despite the misery around you, you can have joy. And you can live in that joy, and you can project that joy out towards others. Peter wrote in the midst of a cautionary note about what people could expect if they're, if they're going to live this Christian life, here's what he wrote. 1 Peter 1, starting at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation to be revealed in this last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while if necessary. and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, Paul's and Peter's application, Jesus' application, when he talked about the end times, always was that there is something to do now. Obedience and love. May it be that we share the joy and love the early church enjoyed. You see, the early church got it. If you think of all the things going on in our world today, and all the divisions, on every level there's division, right? We have political divisions, we have racial divisions, we have divisions between male and female, and even some other events sexualities today. And we often think this is the worst that's ever been, the worst in history, but Paul was writing to a divided society when he wrote this. And even though he was writing to a divided, divided society, he was saying that in the church, you need to have your own. I want to quote Alexander McLaren He said, when these words that I just read were spoken, the then known... Civilized Western world was cleft by great deep gulfs of separation, like the crevices in a glacier, or crevasses, if you like. By the side of which our racial animosities and class differences are merely superficial cracks on the surface, he is talking about the Roman world, Paul was writing to here. Language, religion, national animosities, differences of sex split up the world into alien fragments. A stranger and an enemy were expressed in one language by the same word. Stranger means enemy in one language. The learned and the unlearned, the slave and his master, the barbarian and the Greek, the man and the woman stood on opposite sides of the gulf, flinging hostility across. Like Facebook and Twitter today. Such was the world when Christ gave his new commandment to love. But as years sped by, and the flame of Christianity spread around the Mediterranean, the world witnessed something unheard of before this time. And McLaren continues: barbarians, Scythians, bond and free, male and female, Jew and Greek, learned and ignorant, clasped hands and sat at one table and felt themselves all one in Christ Jesus. They were ready to break all other bonds and to yield to the united forces that streamed out from his cross. There never had been anything like it. No wonder that the world began to babble about sorcery and conspiracies and complicity and unnameable vices. It was only that the disciples were obeying the new commandment. And a new thing had come into the world, a community, held together by love, and not by geographical accidents or linguistic affinities, or the iron fetters of the conqueror. You see, the world is not any more divided today than it was when Paul wrote that in the end. He wrote, live unity, live love. Today, the church in some ways reflects that unity, and in other ways falls far short. Pray God help us to live this. Remember the big idea, we owe a debt of love. We have a due date every day. We have the debt of love, the law of love, the urgency of love. And Paul ties all these together. The debt of love, the law of love, the urgency of love. We should study and be interested in the things of the end times. They're in scripture for a reason, for us to know about them. But if our study of those things or any things in Scripture do not move us into a life that shows more love than we need to search our hearts, are our motivations from Him, from the Spirit, or are they our own, our flesh? And as a kind of a closing, I want to take you back to 8, Romans 8, starting at 18. And a reminder to us that the only way we do that. The only way we live in that unity is to live the life of the Spirit. Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of being was subjected. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been rolling together in the pains of childhood until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And how do we do that? Verse 26. Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes with us. with groanings too deep for words. You may remember when I preached this, it means eight. A lot of times we think we don't even know what to pray for. We don't even need to worry. When most times come, the Holy Spirit is actually interceding the heart. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, how? According to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, according to his purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called; and those whom He also whom He called, He also justified; those whom He justified, He also glorified. See, this is speaking of our glorification in past tense, not because it's already happened, but because effectively Christ is. Now, live it. Now, put on Christ. Now, live in this world where we say, as Paul shows us, hey, the, 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 the time is near. And what's the practical application? Go sit on the side and wait. No. Fulfill the law of love. And have the urgency to show that. our debt. Why is it our debt to love? Because who, how can we pay back the love that God showed us? And he sent his very own son to die in the place of sinners. And so we have a debt of love that we will never be able to pay. Overpay, but we want to act with interest. We want to pay it back with interest as we can, but realizing it will never be paid To us this morning, the hope that you give to each believer, through the encouragement that you are indeed comes. The Lord, let us take you to that connection you make through Scripture, again and again and again. That when we think of your student coming, we are to act in a practical manner to live out.